Thank you, Pastor. And I invite you to give your attention to God's Word as we continue along in our journey in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7. And we'll pick up today, beginning with verse 36. The doctor has good news. And we need good news. We need to be reminded that there is good news. Whether you've known it for decades or whether you are just beginning to discover it, it is important for us to recall to mind that our Savior has come into this world. He is the best news this world will ever know. And we continue to rejoice and give thanks all these many centuries after his coming. How wonderful it is to be reminded. And so, from the Bible, which is the Word of God, hear the Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him, began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Perception is reality. That's what I was told at a session meeting one time, not here, but at another church, as we were talking about Things that people were talking about in the congregation. Perception is reality. But we have to think about perception, don't we? Back in the mid-1800s, when they were mapping the first coast-to-coast railroad, does anybody know where the world's first coast-to-coast railroad was constructed? On the Isthmus of Panama. 
spanning those 47 miles from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. The perception was that the Pacific Ocean was higher than the Atlantic Ocean. It was deemed to be as many as 20 feet higher. It is a notion and an idea that has continued down through the years, and you can still find it in writing to this day. But a survey conducted at the end of the 1840s, which turned out to be accurate, deemed that the mean level of the oceans is the same. What makes the Pacific Ocean appear to be higher is the extremity of its tides. The tide can vary as much as 18 to 20 feet or more, while on the Atlantic side, the tide is almost imperceptible, sometimes only a foot or so. Perception. One might perceive, when reading this passage of Scripture, that there is a woman who needs forgiveness, and there is a Pharisee who perhaps does not, or seemingly not as much. But let's look and consider this. It's interesting. We know the Pharisee's name, for Jesus calls him Simon. We are not told the woman's name. Now, many would have us understand, and I wouldn't argue this too vehemently, that this is a parallel passage with um, Matthew chapter 26 and also in Mark 14 and John chapter 12, which deals with Mary of Bethany. However, there are significant differences in the story, and so it is my belief, along with that of a number of scholars, that this is in fact a separate episode from those. And so therefore, that being the case, we don't know the name of this woman. But at some point, she had encountered and had experienced the love of the Lord through Jesus Christ. Even though known as a great sinner, she had experienced salvation, which comes through Jesus Christ. And out of gratitude, she invades someone else's home. Now notice, Jesus was invited to supper by the Pharisee. Now in popular thought, after all, you can probably find this on Facebook, Jesus didn't hang out with religious people. He only hung out with sinners. However, notice that when a Pharisee invited him to his house, Jesus went. And of course, we know that he did that as a matter of practice. The point is, the Lord Jesus makes himself accessible to all kinds of people. For he associated with all kinds of people. Those who rejected him had only themselves to blame because Jesus never threw up any impediments to those who would come. We don't know why the Pharisee invited him. It was possibly to a banquet in Jesus' honor, or it was a Sabbath meal. Whatever the case, he went. Now, what becomes clear in the, in the telling of this account, as Luke conveys it to us, is that the Pharisee had less than uh, hospitable motives. It appears that he was looking simply to examine Jesus more, or perhaps even to catch him in something because he doesn't extend to him the normal greetings. He doesn't kiss him and welcome him. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't do the types of things that a host would normally do in these circumstances. So, nevertheless, Jesus goes. In the meantime, this woman also comes. She comes into the house. Now, think of the courage that that took for someone like her, a sinner, probably a prostitute, but that's reading into the text. We're having to infer that because... She is known as a sinner. That makes her notorious. She not only enters the house, but she touches the Lord Jesus. 
Now, of course, you know, they didn't sit at the table like we do with our nice chairs sitting straight back with our knees under the table. They reclined at the table. They sat on pillows. Their legs would have been folded back. Feet would have been behind them as they reclined and ate. And so she could have easily accessed his feet as we see in this narrative. And that's just what she did. The Lord Jesus knows all of this. We read a very important passage in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. In that passage it says, Now when he, that is the Lord Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because, get this, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. That becomes apparent in this story. We can be confident in knowing that while Jesus associates with all kinds of people, he knows who he's associating with. Unlike you and I, when we're talking to people, The Lord discerns the heart. We judge based on the outward appearance. We learn that in the story about David, don't we? Man judges based on the outward appearance, but the Lord judges the heart. Jesus knew what was inside. So, by way of perception, it would have appeared that the Pharisee was the one who had it all together. The one who was living the life that would have been deemed to be in harmony with the will of God. But we find out that is not the case at all. The one who looked the part was in fact far away, while the woman who very much did not look the part was in fact the one who was in harmony with the will of God. We learn an extremely important lesson, and there are many lessons we could draw from this. But one of them surely is this, that the magnitude of God's grace can only be realized when we see the magnitude of our own sin. We know that's true. With certain diagnoses, we know that when a doctor pronounces a type of sickness, that we can deem the seriousness of it by the treatment that he prescribes. You know, for a cold, drink plenty of liquids. Stay home. Don't spread it around. Other things require much more serious treatment. In this whole account, we see that sin, of course, is a profoundly serious matter. Now, we've talked about this before. Sin is one of those church words, right? We, uh, we've all heard the story about how Calvin Coolidge, when he was president of the United States, went to church. His wife, Grace, who normally was the one who went to church, was sick that day and couldn't go. And so President Coolidge went, came home. He was a man of few words. And Grace wanted to know what the sermon was about. Finally, Calvin said it was about sin. Well, what did the pastor say? He was against it. <laughs> that was all she was able to extract from her tight-lipped husband. Most people think of sin as, uh, as breaking religious rules, something that church people wouldn't like. That's how sin is generally defined. But, of course, we know it is something much more profoundly deep than that. Sin, as R.C. Sproul has said, is nothing less than cosmic treason committed against God Almighty. 
It is a violation of his holy law. It is a violation of his own character. We have violated his holiness in that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And we don't have to wonder at the seriousness of our sin because all we have to do is look at the remedy. What is necessary in order to accomplish salvation? Nothing less than the suffering and the death of the Son of God on the cross. The torturous, horrible death in which the Son of God literally endured hell as the wrath of God was poured out on him. That tells us what a serious thing sin is. It isn't something to be taken lightly. It isn't just a church word that we can bat around. And so we see that God's grace is huge when we consider the seriousness of our sin. Now, in the, in the parable that the Lord Jesus gives us, these two debtors who have their debts forgiven, we need to understand that a denarius, being that issue of money in the day, one denarius was about a day's wage. So the man who had 500 denarii forgiven, that was about two years' worth of wages. A significant amount of debt, to be sure. And 50 denarii is nothing to sneeze at. That's about two months' worth of wages. Now, both of them had their debts forgiven. Who would love the lender more? Of course, the Pharisee gets it right. You know, he answers carefully. Well, I suppose. That's how we answer a question carefully, right? I suppose. the one who had the most forgiven. Indeed, the woman, realizing much had been forgiven her at this point, already she had experienced salvation, is in gratitude bringing this expensive gift to the Lord Jesus and pouring out her worship there. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved. greater degree to which we realize that we have been forgiven, the greater our love will be expressed. Greater the gratitude that will be expressed. And it takes humility to realize that, doesn't it? Now there is much being said these days about pride. And of course the Bible has a great deal to say about pride. Pride goes before destruction. The scriptures tell us, no uncertain terms, that God opposes the proud. Now, in case you're wondering just exactly what that means, the word oppose in that instance, as used by Peter and James, is a military expression, which means literally that God is on a campaign against the proud. But I see this word bannered about. I, I saw it uh, with regard to a, a famous entertainer. It doesn't matter who it was. I'm not here to name names. And you might get the impression that I would know something about that, and I don't like Will Rogers used to say, all I know is what I read in the paper. And it's not even a paper anymore. It's just a screen on my phone. I'm looking at it. And this uh, famous entertainer made a point of talking about how proud she was of her success and how a building, a huge, huge facility had been packed out with people. And the author of the article said, finally, someone who is proud of her accomplishments instead of fawning humility. 
So pride has become a virtue in our culture. And yet it's not a virtue. Pride is something that is by its nature self-centered that keeps us from humility and keeps us from repenting of our sins, sins of which we are guilty. And so this woman does not come in pride. She is not boasting in her sin. She comes humbly, repenting, already having done so, already having received God's gracious gift. But nevertheless, she comes in a wonderful outpouring of humble love to the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's nothing to boast in, but it does require humility to admit our failures and our shortcomings. And Jesus forgives. You know, it's sad that we've lost just how profound a statement that is. Who can forgive an offense? Only the one who is offended. You think about it for just a moment. Suppose someone breaks into your home. Suppose they do a tremendous amount of damage to your home. They break items. Let's suppose they're heirlooms that are very valuable to you. Not necessarily valuable in terms of the way the world would assess them, but valuable to you. Maybe things that have been in your family for generations. And maybe this person not only breaks things that are valuable to you, but then goes on to harm people that are in your home, people that you love, people that you care a great deal about, harms them very seriously. Now imagine that person comes back at some point in the future, and someone associated with your household meets this person and says, don't worry, I forgive you. Well, that's Wonderful that that person has done it, but what about you who owned the home? What about you whose family that was? What about you whose possessions those were that were defiled and broken, mistreated as they were? If you begin to grasp that notion or idea, you begin to grasp why it is so significant that the Lord Jesus is able to forgive sins. When we sin, who do we sin against? God. We break his law. We act contrary to his will. A mere hired hand, a mere prophet, does not have the authority to forgive an offense committed against the Lord God Almighty. And yet Jesus forgives because he has that authority. When they grumble among themselves, who is this who claims to? be able to forgive sins. Well, he's nothing less than the one who's able to forgive. Even as he's on the cross and looks to those who have committed that worst of all possible acts, putting to death the only truly innocent man that has ever walked the face of the earth and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was a petition that had to be answered because the one who proposed it. Yes, the Lord Jesus forgives sins. And when he forgives, you're forgiven. I may have told you. I've been with you long enough now. I've earned the right to repeat myself, right? I'm also reaching that age where I'm finding that I'm doing it some. 
when Kathy and I were uh, still dating and about to be married, she was finishing up school in Mississippi, and so I had to learn to be content in whatever state she was in. I was in North Carolina in Mount Holly, pastoring at the little church that had uh, called me. I shouldn't say little church. I like what Warren Wiersbe said years ago. There's no such thing as small churches or big preachers. I was pastoring this congregation, wonderful people, and I was across the street visiting two members who had been married for over 60 years, Ralph and Jesse Gewen. And Miss Gewen, Jesse, was talking to me about our church wedding that we had coming up. Little did we know that wedding was going to take place in the middle of a snowstorm, but we still nevertheless had it in the church. And uh, at one point, Jesse said, well, it's nice that you're having that church wedding. She said, me and Ralph years ago took $15 and went off down to York, South Carolina, and we got hitched. And you ain't going to be one bit more married than we are. I had no argument for that. They were married. Jesus doesn't do anything by half measures. When he says this woman's sins were forgiven... They were forgiven. Do you have to take into account the type of sins that she had committed? Do you have to take into account the fact that she may well have been a prostitute and committed those kinds of sins? So that the level of forgiveness would be different in her case than in the case of another? Or do you take what the Lord Jesus says at face value when he says, she's forgiven? Of course we do. He has the authority to say that. When Jesus declares something, we know that it's true. And when we're forgiven by him, we are forgiven. When you're justified by him, you're justified. When you've received eternal life from him, you have eternal life. There's no grading on a curve here. Depending on how you've lived your life, you have a certain amount of forgiveness and the rest is up to you. Oh, woe unto us if we were in that circumstance. So loving gratitude is our motivation for living a Christ-centered life. We can't earn anything by what we do. If you started right now to live a perfect life, you couldn't. But even if you did, it wouldn't be enough because you've already accumulated enough sin debt at this point. And you didn't have to accumulate any. You just had to have some. A sin is enough to separate us from God forever. So your perfect life from here on out would be great, but you still have all that accumulated debt that remains. It must be forgiven. So having been forgiven, having received the gift of eternal life, many would say, well, preaching that kind of thing just gives people a license to go out and live and do whatever they want to. Really? Those who have truly been transformed by the grace of God so that we realize the forgiveness that is ours, And the cost at which that forgiveness has come. He went to the cross to secure this woman's salvation just as surely as he went there to secure our own. And when we see that inestimable price that was paid to purchase us and to guarantee to us forgiveness, anyone who understands that and grasps that would not go out and say, oh, wow, that's over with. Now I can do whatever I want to. We will be overwhelmed with gratitude. And so we worship and serve him out of gratitude. An alabaster flask of costly, fragrant oil, typically used for anointing. We don't know how much this may have cost, but it was 
It was an expensive gift. And again, she did it not because she was trying to get something. She did this because of what she had received from her Savior. The depth of her loving worship led her to ignore even societal convention. Coming into the Pharisee's house, that was huge. And then going up to this rabbi and touching him, he should have considered himself to be defiled at that point, according to societal conventions at the time. But not the Lord Jesus. He was able to touch lepers. He could even touch the dead. He wasn't defiled by anything. It was exactly the opposite because the Lord Jesus brought a holy benediction into every life that he touched. Drops of grief can they repay the debt of love I owe. We serve him all of our days knowing that it's never enough. We can never repay him. He doesn't ask for repayment, but out of gratitude, how could we do anything else? So I would suggest to you, anybody who says, oh yeah, I went forward in a service and got saved one time, and it doesn't matter how I live, I can tell you that person hasn't experienced salvation. Dr. Victor Naka, who heads up all of our missions work in Africa, he is our sub-Saharan African director, tells us sadly that in Africa, churches are filled to overflowing with people who have raised their hands in a service but have not been transformed by the gospel. He said, in America, we have Christians who don't go to church. And in Africa, we have people who go to church, but they're not Christian. Going through the motions. Remember what I said about perception at the beginning? People might perceive us to be or perceive that we have faith. But are we really living our lives out of gratitude? Simon, the Pharisee, the one who was supposed to have his act together, Jesus said concerning him, you, and I've emphasized it in your insert, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you see the contrast? Suddenly perception goes out the window. Suddenly what seems to be the deeper ocean isn't deeper at all. What you have in the case of the Pharisee is the same thing you have in the case of the woman who was known as a sinner He needed forgiveness every bit as much as she did. He just didn't realize it yet. So, we have to grapple with our own standing, don't we? It isn't perception that gets us into heaven. I left you a quote in your uh, meditation, your bulletin. I'm still trying to grapple with Harry Reader having left us and gone to heaven ahead of us. And that's still just... You know, sometimes you just have trouble grasping things. And I found where Harry had preached the sermon back in 2017, just prior to having open-heart surgery. He didn't know what the doctor was going to find in there, and his congregation was all concerned about it. So back in 2017, he said at the end of his sermon, I think it was on a Sunday evening, he said, finally it's simple for me. My sins are forgiven. I have a new record. I have a new heart. I don't know what the surgeon 
is going to find in my physical heart, but I've already told him I have a new one. And I don't have a new body. That new home is astounding. Eyes, eyes have not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So whether it's here or there, I'll see you. Now, he came through that surgery, but he didn't survive the car crash that took him from us. But the words are still true. The believer can always say that to other believers. I'll see you. Jimmy Lyons, who got our missions program started in the Presbyterian Church in America back 50 years ago, a Choctaw Indian, grew up in Oklahoma. Nobody yet I've ever heard sounds like Jimmy Lyons. Some of you listen to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. He's got one of those voices, too. Nobody else has ever had a voice like that. But I can hear Jimmy Lyons say when we would part ways, here, there, or in the air. There is no final goodbye. Not for the believer. Harry Reader knew that. Tim Keller knew that. Charles Stanley knew that. So many others. An innumerable host who's gone before us have known that. They know the truth that faith in Christ saves us and brings to us the blessing of his peace. Whether we're facing open heart surgery or whether we're just pulling out on Highway 41, taking our lives in our own hands. Do that on a motorcycle sometime. It helps you search your heart to know whether you're saved or not. No, I don't need it for that. But as Jesus makes the pronouncement, as they're all abuzz wondering who is this that says he can forgive sins, because he actually can forgive sins, and he does. He commends the woman because of her faith, not because of her works. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith. Not wishful thinking. Not just in optimism. I had an elder used to say it on the session every once in a while when we would be talking about things that were coming up, and he would say, what's our plan? Wishful thinking is not a plan. Wishful thinking is not faith. Mere contrived optimism is not faith. Faith is resting in, trusting in, clinging on to the Lord Christ. And not just once and done, but something that we continually do. We're always trusting in Him. We're always clinging on to Him. We abide with Him. Remember the Lord Jesus said, He who abides in me, I will abide in Him. We remain in Him. We continually trust in Him. And we have to be reminded of the need to do that. But having trusted in Him, there is that accompanying peace that is ours. A peace that's like no other. As I think of those Romanian Christians who greeted us years ago, always when they would come up to us saying, Pace, Pace, peace. People who had been through the years of the Ceausescu regime when the communists were bulldozing churches to the ground, when they were persecuting believers and hauling them off to prison and doing horrible things to them. It meant something to them when they greeted another believer and said, Peace. Their world was turned upside down. They knew anything but peace as the world understands it, but they had it in their hearts because they had come into a saving relationship with Christ and having trusted in Him, it didn't matter if the communists remained in power or if that regime was overturned. They had the peace that passes understanding 
down in the depths of their hearts. And that's how they continue to express themselves to each other to this day. And so peace is an evidence that we have of a right relationship with God through Christ. A peace that he provides. A peace that can come from no one else. It's his blessing. Go in peace. This woman could go knowing that she was forgiven. People could bring up her record and they could call her up. If she was a prostitute, they could call her that or whatever they knew her to be. Hey, Jesus said, I'm forgiven. That's what the man told me. And she could go in peace. Let me tell you something astounding. You know what came to my mind? I thought about that passage in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It always makes me wonder every time I read it. As the gospel goes forth, as the Holy Spirit in power and might through those believers bearing testimony in the early days of the New Testament church, as that is going forth, we get this curious statement, and I wish we knew more, but this is all we have. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, it is not beyond imagining that you would have in a gathering, let's suppose it was in a house, some nondescript location, but nevertheless believers there. A woman saved from a life of sin sitting next to a former priest who knew all the rules and regulations about ceremonial cleanliness, about not associating or defiling oneself with someone like her. And yet, Having come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, I'd like to think that they were right there singing next to each other, praying and giving thanks to the Lord. Saving one who by and according to perception needed no salvation, but he knew deep within his heart he certainly did. And she who still could not believe that the Lord Jesus would save someone like her, and yet part of the household of faith. So the Word of God teaches us that we, what we are to believe about God and what God requires of us. There's a lot of things in there we wonder about. We have all kinds of debates, and we're going to have them this week in Memphis. Let me tell you, there will be discussions and debates. And I, Of course, you know, the thing about Presbyterians, it's not that we discuss matters. We discuss how we're going to discuss matters. Point of order! Point of order! Presbyterians don't believe in backsliding, but if we did, I would have trouble maintaining my sanctification at meetings like that. So all the discussions will be taking place, and there's a lot of things that aren't altogether clear. Christians have falling outs over the nature of Christ's return. Is there going to be a secret pre-tribulational rapture, or is it going to happen at some other point? But the things we really need to know are profoundly clear. For example, Acts 17, 30-31 The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Hey, I can get that. A Jew growing up in Jerusalem or a toe-headed redneck of a boy growing up in western North Carolina. All people everywhere need to repent because he, the Lord, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, capital M, man, whom he has appointed And of this, 
He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And suddenly we're confronted with the requirement that God has placed upon all people, regardless of our walk of life or where we've been. And it's a reminder to each of us. Having done that, we have the blessing of God's peace upon us. We have a Savior who has saved us to the uttermost. You can't be any more forgiven. You can't be any more saved. You can't be any more justified. And one of these days in heaven, once you're glorified, you're not going to go on to experience a greater glorification. What Christ does for us, he does to the full. And so being reminded of these things, it's an opportunity for us to be further equipped as we share the good news with others because everybody everywhere needs to repent. And you know, I think I've come to realize that my biggest grandest hope for this congregation if there's any vision that I would cast that I would that I would want Bay Presbyterian Church to be known for it's this you don't have to write this down you know my mind is not that complicated so you'll get this I want us to be a people from everywhere going everywhere telling everyone about Jesus He said, went to the trouble to get up and come to church today for him to tell me something I already knew? Pretty much. I don't deny that. But I want to remind you that that's what you're here for. We've all come from all kinds of places. And we're leaving today, going to different places. But wherever we've come from and wherever we're going, one way or another, you will bear a witness to your Savior. You may never mention his name, but someone may discern that you're a believer. Years ago, I was walking into the sanctuary of the church where we were serving. You know, my life is like yours. It's quite a contradiction. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's still working on People could easily catch me on an off day. But I was walking into the sanctuary that day with my arms full and I had a cap on my head. Now this may not mean so much to you because anymore we've kind of gotten away from such things. But the way I was raised was you take your hat off when you're inside. So suddenly I realized I had a hat on my head and I was getting ready to walk into the worship area. And with my hands full, I somehow managed to get my arm up there and I knocked my hat off my head. So it just fell in the hallway and tumbled down. Months later, a lady who had been bringing her children to our preschool had joined our church. And she came up to me and she said, you probably don't remember this, but she said, I saw you go in the sanctuary one afternoon. And I saw you go to a lot of trouble to knock the hat off your head. Now, that's not biblical. I'm not trying to lay some guilt trip on you. It's just something I grew up with that I had to do. I could not go in there with a hat on my head. In that moment, somehow, some way, it bore a witness to that dear soul. And that's not when she came to know the Lord. It happened later. But it was part of her journey. Our attitudes, our actions, the way that we speak, the way that we deal with others, whether we have a loving heart toward them or not, 
conveys so much because people know more about you than you realize. They may well, in fact, know that you go to church here. So one way or another, we're bearing witness. So again, I say it. People from everywhere, going everywhere, telling everyone about Jesus. Because no one else can do for us what he can do. And so, yes, you went to the trouble to come today for me to remind you of something that you already know. But we look at the world based on our perceptions. We need to know that God looks beyond what others see. He knows who we really are. You know you need him. He knows you need him. Now, what's keeping you from turning to him with all your heart and confessing that drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe? Father in heaven, blessed be your name. For you're a God of grace and mercy, a God of wonders who has performed miracles and has demonstrated love as no one else ever has or ever could. Please, Father, remind us of the truth that we know that we may live each day in gratitude, knowing that we love because you have first loved us, having been forgiven. We have every reason under the sun to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. So blessed that we may live by grace in a world that desperately needs you and that somehow through our faltering witness may others come to know our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. What else could we sing? Let's stand and do it. Cross, that's the cross.
I told you a long time ago, we'd sing that hymn, Sometimes I'll be the only worm in the house. Well, for such a worm as I, you are redeemed. You're not worms. Created in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of a lamb, go forth and serve him and tell the world about him. To that end, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.